Welcome to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop, where you'll find the unique, the bizarre, and sometimes the haunted. Feel free to look around, peruse the items, and never fear. There's nothing here that bites. Hard, anyway. <laughs> ah, hello there. So delighted to see you've returned to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. I am your shopkeeper, Chris Baker, and today we've got a curious item. If you'll take a look over here, we've got what is a ship's compass. Brass in nature, and of course, it always points north. This particular compass from the late 1800s, and it has seen its fair share of voyages over the seven seas, as told by the wear and tear and tarnish, and even a speckle or two of, is that blood? And therein lies the essence of today's episode of Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. So let's pull out the kinetoscope and take a look at the new film... The Last Voyage of the Demeter. So The Last Voyage of the Demeter is a movie I've been looking forward to ever since I found out this was coming out. Uh, I knew it was a Dracula story. It wasn't really until the movie started when you get that uh, title overlay at the beginning of the movie kind of telling you the, the time period. And it actually uh, talks about being based on a passage from Bram Stoker's Dracula from the Captain's Log chapter of Bram Stoker's Dracula, where you get kind of an account of this voyage of the Demeter uh, from Romania to, to London as uh, Dracula is being taken along with his uh, crates of earth from his homeland uh, to London to Carfax Abbey. And it's a really short chapter. It's done Captain's Log style. You get dates and then what happens. And for the most part, it's not terribly exciting as far as a read goes, but you get to see the chain of events as things happen. First, it's, you know, everything's going fine. Then all of a sudden, a character goes missing and then another character goes missing and then another character goes missing until it's nothing left but the captain himself as he's tied himself to the ship's wheel to, to stay on course to get them to London. At this point, they're only about a day out and this ship runs aground with no survivors. Of course, the captain doesn't go into great detail of what has gone on or what happened to people. People just end up missing. And then the crew starts to turn on one another. The first mate uh, kind of goes crazy and jumps overboard. You don't know if he survived or not, which kind of plays into the, into the movie we see as well. Uh, but... While this isn't a faithful adaptation of that chapter of Dracula, you can't really make a faithful adaptation of that because it's not very detailed. So in a broader scope, it is very faithful. It is about a ship and what happens when Dracula is set loose on it and people being picked off one by one. I'm not giving anything away that's in the fucking trailer. I'll talk about my thoughts on the trailer for this movie and what a disservice it did for the movie. But in a broad stroke sense, it is fairly faithful to this chapter of Dracula. But in a bigger sense, uh, it, 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 shouldn't be, it shouldn't be word for word faithful because it's not very 
detailed to begin with. So you have to expand on things. You have to you have to you know go into different places that make a very cinematic movie because the the story in Dracula is just very kind of basic. But I was really excited when I found out the movie was was coming out. I was excited about the director Andre Overdahl. Uh, excited about the cast, of course. Liam Cunningham, uh, been a huge fan of his. Loved him in things like uh, Game of Thrones, of course. He played the Onion Knight, Sir Davos. Uh, David Dasmalchain, uh, a big fan of his as well. And, and some other faces that I'm not completely familiar with, but now I've become a fan of theirs and really excited to see more with them. And, and we'll get into the details of that coming up. But I might as well get this out of the way now because uh, I, I think we are going to get into some spoiler territory. And I can't really talk about this without getting spoilery. So if you haven't gone to see The Last Voyage of the Demeter, it's a good movie. I enjoyed it very much. It's a movie that looks more expensive than the $45 million budget it was given. The acting is superb. Like I said, you've got a lot of really good actors. Liam Cunningham, David Dasmalchain. Uh, David Dasmalchain, I knew he was going to be in this, and it wasn't until the end credits that I realized who he was. The the makeup and, and the things they did with his hair and the mustache, uh, it didn't seem like him. And he did a really good job playing this character that uh, I, I didn't realize it was him until the end, but he does a great job. Corey Hawkins in the lead is really good. Uh, Aisling Franciosi, hopefully I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but she does a wonderful job. And just, uh, the supporting cast is is really good in this and we'll get into the the characters and the actors in a little more detail but the cast is really good in this movie there are some things that i wish were done a little differently but again i'm going to talk about that in the spoilery section but the the effects are really good the design on dracula is really good and i think if you like dracula stories if you like a different dracula story this isn't the romantic dracula that you're, you're used to this is one section out of the Dracula story where they get to portray Dracula as a feral creature. And it really makes, you know, where Dracula is scary and can be scary and I think should be scary. I, I get tired of the, the jokey kind of uh, either suave or comedy laden Dracula stories that they've, they've done a lot of lately. Renfield's one of them, whereas Dracula was kind of a fucking joke. And some of those Dracula stories where he's the great seducer, and he is, but, you know, Dracula hasn't been scary for a very long time. And I think this is the kind of movie to make Dracula scary again. And I'm really excited to see where they go from here. But the effects and, and everything, it was really good. It's a savage and brutal, bordering on melancholy, gothic vampire tale. And, and by God, who doesn't love some of that? But not a perfect movie, but we'll get into that in the spoilery section. So if you haven't watched The Last Voyage of the Demeter, uh, go check it out. Come back once you've watched it and hear what I think about it. But from now on, we are going to get into some very spoiler-heavy territory. So, like I said, the, the basic premise of this is that this is a ship uh, setting sail on a trip from, I can't remember if it's Romania, I, I know there's a, it's a Russian crew, I, I can't remember the exact uh, geography at all, but but they're sending, you know, uh, Dracula's uh, henchmen, if you will, have brought his stuff to, to wherever this ship is sailing out of, and they are heading to London. And as they go, Dracula has need to feed, 
as vampires often do, and crew members are getting picked off one by one. And it's a very simple plot. And I think this section of the story in Dracula is kind of like tailor-made for a movie because, one, it is a very simple idea. And I think the simplest ideas, the simplest stories are the best when it comes to, to good horror movies. Uh, once things get overcomplicated, then it just it just makes it a... You know, you're trudging through it to try and figure things out. That's not to say that uh, you know some horror movies can't have some complexity to it. But like I said, uh, a simple story, a simple premise is the best route to go. Uh, you can add some complexity of character and complexity in other ways. But, uh, but if you keep the basic premise simple, I, I think you're on a good start. And in this story, uh, the captain's log uh, from the Demeter in the Dracula novel... It sets a, a simple story in motion. Like I said, it doesn't give much detail in the book, but it gives just enough to really set the stage for a writer and director to really expand on all of that and, and make something very compelling and very, very cinematic. And, and that's exactly what Andre Overdahl and Braggy Shoot Jr., uh, I'm probably pronounced butchering that first name, but, uh, but the screenwriter for this, that's what they did is they took this simple premise, uh, expanded on it and, and made uh, a really good movie. And, and I think you can't get much better than, Everybody being trapped on a boat with Dracula and everybody getting picked off one by one. So we're going to talk about some of the characters. Not all of them. I mean, everybody who who's in this does a really good job. All of the secondary characters and the tertiary characters all did a really good job. But we're going to focus on like maybe four, five, six of the, the main characters that we find on this boat. And kind of where they're at and why... Why you care about them, and in some regards, why I wish I cared about them more. Uh, but there are some really good characters and some really good actors. Like I said, all the actors did a really good job, but we're going to focus on just a few of the main characters. Uh, first and foremost, Clemens is the, the main character of this movie. He's a doctor who studied at Cambridge. He's a, a black man who... You know, in the late 1800s, it was a big deal for a black man to even go to university, let alone become a doctor. But, you know, he, he went through all that hard work to become a doctor. And then he's finding out that, you know, nobody's hiring him because of the color of his skin. Uh, he gets hired to be the physician to some uh, higher up. I can't remember if it's royalty or whoever in Romania uh, because they've got word of, of how well he did in, in university and how good of a doctor he is. But as he puts it in the movie, uh, they didn't get the memo on the color of his skin. And when he got there to Romania, he found himself out of a job. And, and that's why he's trying to make his way back to London. But Corey Hawkins uh, plays this character and not an actor... I'm terribly familiar with. I, I know he's been in a lot of things. Uh, he was uh, a little part in Iron Man 3, uh, a movie my my one good friend Dave has been trying to get me to watch Six Underground. He's in that, but I haven't watched that movie yet. Uh, a lot of movies that uh, I've, I've heard of, but I'm not uh, terribly familiar with because I never watched them. He's done a little bit of TV. Actually, he was in The Walking Dead. He played the Heath character. Uh, for a couple seasons. So that's probably where I remember him most from. But he really did a wonderful job with this character because he added a bit of compassion. You know, you really felt for his 
position because it's very much a position that is indicative of how things were in the 1800s but it's a it's a position that i'm sure a lot of people of color find themselves in even today and and you can you can relate to that and you can empathize with that and and he's just a you know he's just a guy trying to do what he does best and that is be a doctor be a physician care for people look after the sick look after the infirmed uh mend broken bones and things like that and uh, the little speech that he gives at the dinner table when asked what he would do with the bonus money that they're going to get for arriving in London early and he said there's there's nothing that he wants that money can buy essentially and they're like well what do you want And he just wants to understand. And he talks about it very reserved. You can tell he's holding back something. But he talks about it in very broad strokes that he just wants to understand how things work and why things are the way they are. But in a bigger picture, he wants to understand why he put in all this hard work to become a doctor, to do things for for people, to help people, to help society, to make society better. And why he's being rejected just because of the color of his skin. I think that's the bigger thing that's that's eating away at him. And he, he essentially admits to that later in the movie when he has a heart-to-heart with the uh, David Dusmalchian character, Wojciech. But Corey Hawkins did a, a superb job with this. And, you know, we're in the spoilery section of this. So it's no big uh, secret that he's the one that survives. At first, I was like, I really wished everyone died because that would be more in line with the story from Dracula. But then I read, reread this section of Dracula and this chapter. And it's not very long, it's only a, a few pages at best. But in there, it talks about the first mate going crazy and jumping overboard. You assume he died. But we don't know if he died or if he lived. So technically, maybe one person did survive the the voyage of the Demeter. And not everyone on the the ship died. But, you know, I'm I'm making loose connections there. I really thought it would have been a, a ballsier move and a more nihilistic move for them to kill everyone off on this ship. Uh, but I get why they had the Clemens character survive because... Uh, the way they end this movie, and we'll, we'll get a little into a little more detail there, but uh, it looks like they want to make more, and and I'm hoping that they do. I suppose it all just depends on the box offices. That's why I encourage everyone to go out and watch this. Uh, watch it in the theaters. Don't wait for it to come out on uh, on streaming, because if you want good movies like this, you want horror movies hitting the big screen, you got to support them. So I understand why the Clemens character had to survive, had to live on, and in a way... Uh, I wanted everyone to die just because that's horror for me. But I'm glad this character survived because I really did like the Clemens character. I think the Clemens character, while it's not uh, in the book, it's not a part of Dracula lore, uh, I think it would be an interesting way to uh, to continue the story. Uh, having this character interact with maybe a Dr. Van Helsing, Jonathan Amina Harker in the future... Uh, or, or maybe they do something kind of uh, parallel with that 
story of Dracula and and maybe have them intersect only in the briefest ways. I don't know how they're going to do it, but I'm excited to see Corey Hawkins uh, continue this character if they do at least a sequel to this. Hopefully, hopefully more movies. But uh, Corey Hawkins, excellent, and uh, an American actor giving a British accent in this. He did a really good job with that, and it's actually kind of funny because uh, so many times you find British actors in things doing American accents. It's rarely... Do I ever see it the other way around? I don't know why that delights me, but uh, Corey Hawkins did a good job with his accent, I guess is probably why I feel it's worth mentioning. One of the other main and integral characters, and really the character that kind of sets everything in motion for this, is the uh, Aisling Franciosi uh, character, Anna. She is an unwitting stowaway is probably the best way you can explain it because they have all of these crates of dirt that they're hauling from Romania to London and things shift in the cargo hold and the one box breaks open and it is a box that has her in it and she is on the verge of death. Uh, she's, you know, her eyes are all sunken and Clemens starts giving her a, a, a primitive, a crude uh, blood transfusion, but it'd be the type of blood transfusion that would be given uh, back in the late 1800s, nursing her back to health. And, and what this character essentially is, is Dracula uh, bringing snacks for the trip. <laughs> and he, she's full of bite marks. Uh, we find out that her village essentially sacrificed her and, and she's not the only one that they've sacrificed Dracula to essentially stay on his good side so he doesn't uh, wipe them all out they'll send a cinema a morsel from time to time and he like he said he brought some road snacks and she's got bite marks all over her most of them are healed but she has been bitten by Dracula now in the Dracula lore it's generally perceived that if you're bitten by Dracula, things happen to you, but it's not until you ingest some of Dracula's blood that you actually turn into a vampire. Uh, I'm, I'm speaking loose terms here. In this movie, it is just if you are bitten and he doesn't kill you and drain your blood completely, you can turn into a vampire. And she is essentially in this state where she is going to become a vampire, but the blood transfusion that Clemens gives her, uh, and he's given her multiple over days, um, it, it kind of plays out. That holds off what's going on, the vampiric transformation for her. So for the bulk of this movie, we see her as uh, a regular functioning human. But the thing of it is, is Dracula brought his road snacks and they've taken that away from him. So what's a vampire to do? But that's when he starts feeding on the dog, the ship's dog, uh, feeding on the livestock that they've brought to eat. And once all that's gone, he starts feeding on crew members one by one. And it's something I picked up on right away. And they talk about it at the end. They come to the same realization that we as the audience are, are probably coming to. He's rationing out this crew for this trip 
from from Romania all the way to London. I believe in the book it's a month-long trip. I can't remember exactly how long they say it is in the movie, but you have to imagine it's probably about the same length of time. So he is rationing out his food supply and taking one person every night or so and trying to survive. And I thought that was a very interesting thing to do with the Dracula character because it gives him, you know, like I said, we're seeing a more feral, animalistic version of Dracula, a less human version of him. But he still has uh, his, I was going to say his humanity, but it's not really humanity, but he still has his his sense of himself. He is just in a an emaciated, lesser state that makes him more like a a cornered animal trying to survive, doing whatever he has to do to survive. And you get that sort of mentality of him, you know, being calculating, still calculating to not just wipe out the whole boat and and drink all their blood like a, a wild animal would. He's still got his wits about him. He's still Dracula, even though he is in this feral fighting to survive mode, he is smart enough and calculating enough to ration out his meals. Uh, he is uh, malicious and sinister enough to delight in the taking of a life to sustain himself. You get several scenes where he's smiling, almost toying like with his food like a cat, like a feral cat. As much as that is a wild animal, a feral cat, uh, you'll still see it playing with a mouse before it devours it. And that's kind of the vampire feralness that we get in this Dracula, which I, I absolutely love because, like I said, most of the time you either get jokey comedy Dracula or you get super overly seductive Dracula. I think the Gary Ullman Dracula is probably the one of the best adaptations of Dracula that we've had just because he goes through so many different transformations. You get the the old withered man that's been alive for hundreds of years but has just barely been keeping himself alive with a, a little morsel here and there and then when he comes to uh, London you know he's fed he's feeding again he's feeding on fresh meat fresh blood if you will and we see the more stately uh, younger looking version of Dracula but then you've got the when he turns into the wolf you got when he turns into the big bat this I think this version of Dracula kind of is a cross between between the Gary Oldman bat Dracula that we got in Bram Stoker's Dracula and the Mr. Barlow vampire that we got in the Toby Hooper version of Salem's Lot. Of course, which was a riff off the old silent film Nosferatu and that creature design. And of course, a couple more characters and then we'll kind of get into my thoughts on the film as a whole. You had Liam Cunningham playing Captain Elliot, the captain of the Demeter. Wonderful job. I find it funny. He always gets these characters that are... Uh, are men of the sea. Of course, he was the Onion Knight. Uh, Sir Davos, uh, you know, he ran ships smuggling uh, in Game of Thrones. And, of course, he's here on the Demeter on a ship. Not smuggling, but hauling uh, illicit uh, merchandise, if you will, uh, so to speak. But Liam Cunningham always does a, a wonderful job. And, and I think because he kind of plays that salty sea captain quite well may not even salty i mean he is very grandfatherly in game of thrones 
as Sir Davos uh, with with Stannis's uh, daughter, very grandfatherly to her. And this, he has a grandson, which we'll talk about, who's who's on the ship with him, and he's very grandfatherly to him. He's actually a very good captain, an honest, hardworking captain that uh, expects the best out of his men, but uh, but treats his men the best. And of course, there's one bit at the end of Captain Elliot's story that we get to see in this movie where he's talking to Clemens and talking about going down with the ship and being true to my trust. And probably one of my favorite passages out of this chapter of uh, the captain's log chapter of Dracula, where he's talking about, you know, everyone's gone and he knows there's this presence on the boat. And he's talking about if he can look me in the face again, I may not have time to act. But he says, if we are wrecked, mayhap this bottle may be found and those who find it may understand. If not, well, then all men shall know that I have been true to my trust. God and the Blessed Virgin and the saints help this poor ignorant soul trying to do his duty. And I, I loved how they kept that line about him being true to his trust and true to his, his ship and and the cargo that was entrusted to him. And I, I just love how they kept, you know, that little bit of the man that we got to understand in the this chapter of Dracula. Uh, like I said, it's not very detailed as far as character goes, but this is one of those really interesting and, and nice little character moments where you get to understand the type of man that this captain was in the book. And and I love how you they, they translated that. Maybe not exactly, but, but I think you get the heart of it and you get those lines about him being true to his trust. And that's one of the things I really loved about about this adaptation of this section of the book and the portrayal of this character in and of itself. However, you didn't get as much of his backstory as I think you would like because there's talk of his daughter and now he has his, his grandson. I don't know if something happened with her. Maybe I missed that in the, the dialogue. Uh, there's a backstory there that I wish we had a little more emotional connection. And I think that's probably the biggest problem I had with the script for this is that it lacked some emotional connection to, to some of the characters. I mean, the Clemens character, you really don't get the full weight of his backstory until the very end of the movie. And and I don't mind where they place that. Uh, I think it would have made you feel a little more compassion for him early on. But I, but I think they alluded to it. And, and I'm okay with, with that. But the Anna character, uh, you only just got so much to feel sorry for her that her village offered her up to Dracula. And that's about it. That's just enough for you to care, but not really enough to make an emotional connection. It's the same with Captain Elliot and his grandson, Toby. You got just enough to care about them, but I really didn't feel an emotional connection to either one of these characters. And that's sad because like the Toby character, the, the grandson, played by Woody Norman, and this is a young actor that I just, I'm excited to see more from him because I really enjoyed him in this. He's been in a couple other things that I'm not terribly familiar with, but he is in that new movie Cobweb that I haven't seen yet. I found out it's finally video on demand, so I'm going to watch that. And I know he's in that, and I'm really excited to see him in that because I enjoyed him as 
as Toby in in this movie. And and that was the sad thing is when Toby was attacked, stalked and attacked and eventually killed by Dracula. It was it was hard to watch because he is a kid, but I just didn't get enough with him to make an emotional connection. And and I really wanted that. And while it was sad and and more horrific than anything, where it lacked an emotional connection, it, it made up for in the horror aspect of the movie because this kid being drained by Dracula was a, a horrifying image when they're about to give him a burial at sea and Captain Elliot rips the burial shroud open before they can dump him into the sea and he's turned into a vampire, but it's broad daylight and the sun and he starts to burn alive and and Captain Elliot's holding him and he's starting to get burned. I, it was just a, the screams. It was just a horrific scene to watch. And while it lacked, like I said, in that mo- emotional connection that I wanted, you know, I wanted to feel more than just uh, a kid died, and that's sad. Uh, and the way he died is is very horrific. Uh, but I wanted a little more emotional connection. But what I did get was some some horror that it, it's some haunting imagery that I, I'm glad they had the balls to do. Uh, don't get me wrong, I wouldn't take anything away from what they did. Like I said, I just wish there was a little more emotional connection with Toby with Captain Elliot, with with a lot of the characters, Anna, even so with Clemens. I wish there was a little more emotional connectivity that I had with this character, even though he is the one character you feel a little more connected with than anyone. And then uh, one, maybe kind of two more characters we're going to talk about real quick. David Dasmalchain's Wojciech, he is the first mate of the Demeter, and he does kind of get some of the... Uh, story from the first mate in the novel Dracula because he's hot-headed he gets upset with the crew and for for being superstitious and being worried about this this presence that's on the boat in the book like I said he jumps overboard in this it is different they set up a trap for Dracula and and he's killed that way but I have to tell you, with the makeup, with the hair, with the mustache they gave him, uh, the accent that he used, I didn't realize that was David Dusmolchain, and uh, it, it just makes me enjoy him as an actor even more. This is a guy that I can't wait to see the next thing he does, because he does work a lot in genre, in horror, you know, like I said, he was just in the, the Boogeyman playing the Lester Billings character here recently, so uh, really can't wait to see what this guy is going to be in next. He's one of those actors that have become like that for me. And he did a really good job with this character. Like I said, I didn't even realize it was him. And and the character is a character that you you like, but you don't like. He can be hard and severe and not very nice, but he's not a bad guy. And he's, he's you know, a man of, of, of some honor, if you will. And I enjoyed David Dasmalchian's performance. It's what made this character work for me. Uh, also, the role of Dracula was played by Javier Botet. And if you're not familiar with that name, you've probably seen him in a ton of things. I mean, Jesus, what hasn't he been in? Uh, he was in Crimson Peak. He was in The Conjuring 2, The Mummy. He was in It, Chapter 1 and 2, The Insidious Last Key, Slender Man. Just a ton of movies and television. And he usually does things like this. He plays 
monsters essentially he's all get up in in and prosthetics and and body suits and things like that and motion capture stuff he's just kind of a master at playing these roles these monster roles these creature roles and that's what they did with this and he does a wonderful job because a lot of this is uh, you know, him in a suit, him in a mask, him in prosthetics, but a lot of times it is augmented with some CG and stuff like that. And I think that's where CG works the best is when you've got practical enhanced with CG and uh, he does a wonderful job with this character and it really is a character. Uh, because it doesn't have many lines or anything like that, but the presence of this character and, and his performance in that in that role. Uh, really makes the Dracula character work in this. And we'll get into the creature design coming up in a little bit. But yeah, I really did like this movie. It, it played out a lot like. Like I said, you can't do a word-for-word -word adaptation from the book because this story is only in one chapter. It's done like a captain's log. It doesn't go into great detail. You get little notes and little beats. And, and they stayed fairly close to a lot of those beats about people disappearing. Of course, the, the first person to go missing is the Petrovsky character and and that's in the book and then Olgren uh, goes up missing and, and that's from the book and that's a that's another actor I'm not terribly familiar with but I really liked his performance like I said all those secondary crewmates uh, did a really good job with with their characters but uh, but a lot of that stuff was pulled right from the book uh, as much as there is to pull from it. Uh, even the captain in in the book in the the chapter of Dracula, uh, he is tied to the the ship wheel uh, to keep it on course. Now they they pay homage to that where Dracula is going to kill Captain Elliot, and Captain Elliot uses a uh, rosary to try and ward him off. and And I didn't like that they dismiss the idea that Dracula is not afraid or is afraid of uh, Christian imagery or it hurts him or whatever. Uh, they just kind of poo pooed that, and he ends up killing uh, Captain Elliot anyway. But in I think a perverse mocking of Captain Elliot's faith. Dracula ties him to the wheel, uh, crucifix style. And I thought that was an interesting nod to the book and how Captain Elliot ties himself to the wheel to, to keep it on course before he dies. And the one thing I really did like about this movie is the fact that Andre Overdahl did with this movie what should have been done. It's just the people that did the trailer. And a lot of times studios hire outside firms to to do trailers. And I have to imagine that's what happened here. And, and they totally fucked this movie with the trailer because they showed Dracula big, bold, and uh, in broad daylight in front of God and everyone uh, in the trailer. And I thought that was such a huge mistake. That is, a, that is an iconic reveal that comes later I mean, they don't wait too long to reveal Dracula, but they don't show him right off the bat. And and Andre Overdahl has really good sensibility when it comes to horror and, and how to make things scary. And that's what he did. You know, you got flashes and shadows at first. Then you see a little bit of a body in the distance uh, duck behind something and, and something move fast across the screen. And, and they really held off on showing Dracula until I can't remember exactly how far into the movie, but you're you're well into the second act uh, when you finally get to see Dracula. Now, when you do see Dracula, 
all bets are off and they show Dracula plain as day, which is fine because you've built up that mystery, you've built up that anticipation, and they did a really good job with that. And then once once you see Dracula, the Dracula you first see isn't the Dracula you end up with because he's he's feeding more and more, he is evolving more and more until you know you go from this tall pale slender man which is from the book i believe yeah i believe that's how they describe what the crew members are seeing in the the novel in that chapter of dracula to this bat-like creature that you get at the very end so you can see that the more dracula feeds the more he's evolving the more uh he's able to to transform into what he wants to transform into and and i loved the creature design on this like i said it, it felt like a cross between the bat dracula that we got in uh gary oldman's performance with uh, bram stoker's dracula and that and mr barlow from 1979's uh, salem's lot i thought it was a great mesh of the two and it looked creepy and wicked and sinister and like i said those moments uh they they capture of javier botet uh smiling just felt menacing and wicked and this mouth full of razor sharp teeth i know uh, i watched an interview with andre overdahl where he's talking about he didn't want to just have the two fangs he wanted to have this these rows of razor sharp teeth to play into the feral animal aspect of this version of dracula this this chapter in Dracula's life. And I thought the special effects were really good from the the practical effects and the makeup that they did to the visual effects and the visual augmentation that they did to the practical stuff. I thought looked really good. This was a, a very interesting version of Dracula. Like I said, it, it's playing into the more feral animal version of Dracula, but I liked it. We, we don't get a ton of Draculas like that. And... You know, it implies that as Dracula's feeding, he's evolving, and you have to imagine he... And I I thought you would see Dracula more in a human look when we finally saw him get to London, because there's a scene where they're opening up the crates of Earth, and they find this cane with a silver wolf's head handle. And I thought, oh, that is a visual cue that is going to come up later when Dracula finally makes it to London, and we're going to see a human that is with that cane, and you're going to know that's Dracula. Well, they, they sort of did that, but they didn't exactly do that. Now, I'll talk about that briefly. But that implies that the more he feeds, the more control he has over his transformations and what he can transform into. And I thought, you know, eventually we'd see a, a human-looking Dracula because the Anna character even says he looks like a man, but that's just essentially a mask, a facade to hide what he really is on the inside, the, the monster that he really is. I wish we could have got a more visual depiction of that, but like I said, all in all, I loved the vampire design. I loved the, the design of the ship. I mean, they actually built a, a ship set uh, to work on. Now, I know they probably did kind of like that uh, that big green screen visual wraparound thing. I can't remember what they call uh, what they call it now. I think they do that in all the Star Wars stuff, the Mandalorian, things like that. But, uh, but they did a lot of visual, but the, the ship itself was was an actual set and it, it looked really good it looked fantastic it looked like a, a a dirty rickety old ship and and you know that really added to giving these 
these actors uh, a real fun place to a world to live on you know there's a lot of rain you know you can you can project rough seas and stuff like that but they had the actual rain and and fog and things like that that just everything looked really good now i I will say that the nighttime scenes early on weren't lit very well i mean they weren't completely dark i mean they weren't uh house of the dragon dark but they were they were dark and and i understand in doing that that you had to to kind of keep dracula veiled and to keep the mystery of did I see what I think I saw, you know, to constantly be looking, you know, I found myself in scenes that Dracula wasn't even in, but I'm looking to see where, where he might be crawling along this or or up along that or behind here. And they did some scenes where you find out later that he was lurking in this corner or lurking over here. So you found yourself throughout this and in those dark scenes at night, trying to find where Dracula might be. Sometimes you'd see him, sometimes you wouldn't. Sometimes he was there, sometimes he wasn't. Those scenes, like I said, were dark, but not so dark that you couldn't tell what's going on, but they weren't lit fantastically. Uh, and I, I, like I said, there's a reason for that. But the climax of this, they're setting this trap for Dracula. Dracula's no dummy. He still has his wits about him, even though he is in this feral state, like I said, and he's not having it. He's not jumping into their trap and he starts picking them off again one by one. But but that scene, for a night scene on a ship, there's a storm. So you get a lot of light from lightning. You've got the lanterns. And it was just lit very well. And I think at this point, it's a nighttime scene that has to be lit very well. So you can see all the action and see what's going on. It felt like a different night scene than the night scenes we saw before. But those weren't, uh, you know, those weren't stormy scenes. So you didn't have the lightning. Uh, so, so it makes sense, but it really did feel like uh, night and day when it came to the night scenes at the beginning of the movie and the night scene during the climax of the movie. But of course, you had to figure Dracula was going to get away because that is the story. That's how it leads into the next chapter of Dracula. Clemens and Anna going overboard and the sun's coming up and Anna, you know, it's been a long time since she had her last blood transfusion and she's starting to show that she is turning into a vampire. And then, of course, she lights on fire. I, I do have to say the scenes, they had three of them with the Olgerin character, with Toby, and with Anna. These characters who've turned into vampires being lit on fire by the sunlight uh, was just the, the effects on that were really cool and really good. And they used some practical fire, some CG fire. Uh, it, it was a really well done effects on that, I thought, and very believable and uh, maybe not completely realistic. I mean, you could tell in some regards that it is CG, but uh, but it was really good CG, I thought. And then, of course, you have that that end scene where Clemens is at a bar trying to find the owner of Carfax Abbey, and he's sitting there drinking, and then all of a sudden you hear the, the knock that everyone did on the ship, and you see it's this cane being knocked on the floor, and then you get a glimpse of a man in a cloak and and coat and cape and and maybe a top hat and he's got this wolf head cane you get a a glimpse of the face the face still looked a little monstery uh a little fangs and gray skin Uh, nobody that i would see in a barn think oh there's nothing wrong with them Uh, like i said i really wish they would have made 
this Dracula, by the time we get to this point, a little more human. But it did lead to what is probably going to be another film. You see Clemens vowing that he's going to hunt down Dracula. And that makes me wonder where they're going to go next. I mean, there is the next chapters of the Dracula story. I mean, the bulk of Dracula takes place after he gets to Carfax Abbey and has the run-ins with uh, Lucy and Mina and and Mina and John coming back to London, Van Helsing being involved. Uh, you do have a lot of story left to tell for at least one more movie. And I'm excited to see if they do that. Now, this movie cost $45 million. I mean, this just came out, and I know numbers I've seen haven't met that yet. I'm really hoping that it does. And and by the amount of people I saw in the theater, I mean, I went to see it on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, so And there was probably about 13 of us in the movie theater, which is a lot for a Saturday afternoon because I go to see a lot of matinees. Uh, I don't like people on their cell phones and talking. And if I can go to a showing that has the least amount of people in it, then I can watch my movie in peace without you know somebody checking their cell phone or without people talking through the whole effing movie. But, uh, but there were still, on a Saturday afternoon, there were still a lot of people there. So I'm hoping that is indicative of this movie doing well in the box office, well enough that we are going to see a sequel to it but that really remains to be seen but ultimately like i said i really enjoyed this movie andre overdahl does a wonderful job i'm i'm a big fan of most everything i've seen of his from from watching troll hunter back in 2010 loved that it was such a cool found footage and the the effects were really good autopsy of jane doe scary stories to tell in the dark was really good and this the last voyage of the demeter uh you add this to to a long list of of wonderful films and you know i i can't wait for the next thing andre overdahl does he's just a, a wonderful director uh this movie really had a wonderful look and feel to it where it lacked in things like some emotional connection with some characters, which I consider that a writing thing and not necessarily a directing thing. The visuals and the cuts and the atmosphere and tension, I think those are things, uh, especially atmosphere and tension, those are things that are solely on a director's uh, shoulders and, and performance, getting a, a good performance out of actors. I mean, I, I know it's on the actor, but you know he's got to be able to coax it out of them. And you know he got good performance out of his actors. He set tone and tension he made scenes that weren't necessarily traditionally scary, very scary because of the atmosphere, because of the creepiness, and because he didn't show his monster right away. And and that's, like I said, what I think was a detriment to this movie was the trailer showing Dracula in full glory right off the bat. But, uh, but he had the good sense not to do that. Uh, if you didn't watch the trailer and you watched this, you really got a slow build to the horror that is the Dracula that we got. And, and Andre Overdahl uh, did a wonderful job with that. Bear McCreary did the soundtrack for this, the scoring for this, and, and did a wonderful job. And uh, you know, cine cinematographer Thomas Stern, uh, a great job as well. Some beautifully lit scenes. And like I said, that finale was was wonderful in the set. Every, everybody that worked on this did, did a really good job. And this is by no means a perfect film, but it is a pretty damn good film. I would watch this movie again in a heartbeat. And Universal finally got a fucking Universal monster movie right. Uh, for, for so long, they've tried to turn 
uh, things into action movies. The mummies, they're just constantly trying to make that an action movie. Uh, you know, the, the invisible man. I, I, I like the last one that they did, um, with the, with the girl from Handmaid's Tale. But even that wasn't a, a perfect version of the invisible man that I kind of want. Uh, but Dracula, you know, Renfield was, Dracula was a fucking joke. As well as Nicolas Cage did with that version of Dracula as it was written. You know, Dracula was, it was all for jokes. And this Universal is finally wised up. And is trying to make Dracula scary again. Trying to make vampires scary again. Uh, I don't want fucking twinkly vampires. And I don't want vampires sitting there, uh, you know, racking out jokes and jokes and jokes. I want scary vampires. And Universal, I think, finally got one right. I just hope that people go to the box office and, and reward them for doing vampires right. And doing Dracula right. And I'm excited to see where they go with that. Uh, what version of Dracula we're going to get next? Is it going to be the Gary Oldman style uh, seductive Dracula? Are they going to keep with the monstery Dracula? I, I hope it's kind of a uh, an amalgamation of both, if that makes any sense. But I'm really excited to see how this does at the box office and whether this is going to lead into uh, another movie. Because I think this is set up for a sequel. I think there's tons of story for a sequel, if not more. And I'm really interested to see, and hopefully we get to see more of this because it is set up to be a, a potential film series. And, and that's exciting. If you're a horror fan, if you're a fan of those classic monsters like Dracula, I can't wait to see what comes of the Last Voyage of the Demeter. So I want to thank everyone for listening to my thoughts on The Last Voyage of the Demeter. Excellent Dracula movie. Uh, I, I know in some places it is being marketed as internationally Dracula Voyage of the Demeter. I think if they would have marketed it that way, the people that did the trailer wouldn't have felt the need to pronounce this as Dracula and here he is. Uh, but I do like The Last Voyage of the Demeter as a title uh, a lot better. So eh, anyway, uh, that's another tangent that I'm not going to get on. But want to thank everyone for listening to my thoughts on the last voyage of the Demeter. You can check out more about what's going on with Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop on our Facebook page and our Instagram page. Always posting trailers and articles I find all over the internet, all sorts of other stuff as well. And uh, no matter where you listen to this podcast, please like, follow, subscribe it, whatever they call it. Do that to stay on top of all the new episodes. Uh, share this podcast with anyone that you know that loves horror, fantasy, and science fiction. And as always, please leave those reviews. They're very important. Uh, letting these uh, podcast platforms know that uh, people like this and they need to start uh, making it more front and center to the uh, listening audiences that uh, that dig this sort of thing. So please leave those reviews. Five stars would be awesome. But whatever review you leave, we do appreciate that. So until next time. Thank you for visiting Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. We hope that you found something to your liking and visit the shop again soon. But even though you may come back, you never really get to leave Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. Ha 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 ha!